Hey everybody, welcome to the Free Coke Camp Podcast. I am Quincy Larson, the teacher who founded Free Coke Camp, and today I am joined by Sean Wang, aka Swix. Hey Sean. Hey Quincy, what's up? Sean grew up in Singapore and he came to the US as a college student and he has worked in finance for a long time, but at the age of 30, he burned out. He decided that he wanted to instead focus on learning the code and take his career in that direction. So he used Free Code Camp. He used a lot of other resources. And since then, he's worked as a freelance developer. He's worked at a lot of different companies, including Netlify. So today, we're going to hear all about Sean and his coding journey. Sean. Yeah. You are an advocate of a methodology, I guess, a productivity approach called No Zero Days. <laughs> and can you tell us what No Zero Days is? Sure. So just to be clear, I didn't come up with it. I came across it on Reddit. And it's this idea that discipline is more important than, and it's, and when it comes to discipline, there's a difference between simple and easy. There are some things which are not simple. Sorry, there's some things which are simple, but not easy. And a lot of things fall into that category. And the way to combat that is to have simple rules that you just do not violate ever. And so the idea is to have, to, if you have this goal and you want to achieve it, to always progress towards that goal every day without any stopping. So that's a, 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 a day in which you do not progress towards that goal or don't perform an action towards your goal. That's a zero day. So you want to go for no zero days in your journey. And that's very, that's like the opposite framing of you. you uh, I think you had people, uh, I don't know who created the 100 Days of Code challenge, people who create sort of sequential challenges like that. Those are nice, those are nicely scoped. But this is, this one is just a blanket no zero days policy where uh, you can do the smallest action. So for example, if you're trying to get into the gym more, so if you're trying to work out more, don't plan like this giant, massive workout routine that takes two hours to finish. Literally just say, I'm going to put on my shoes, get my gym clothes, step into the gym, and you're done. Like no like lifting up of weights, no like running, just like just get your body into the gym. And that's not, that, that counts, right? So, but then like what the, the idea is that once you've done your basic sort of minimal action, you can, you're incentivized, you're already there, right? You're already in the gym. You can do the next thing pretty easily because you're, you're there. But the, the goal is to get over that hurdle of just like not doing anything. And I find that was important to me during my journey through Free Code Camp because there's a lot of content in Free Code Camp. So I was just like, all right, the way to motivate myself to push through this is to just have no zero days. So just like every day, no matter how sucky I feel, how much I don't want to do it or how much I do want to do it. I just show up and do like a project or a lesson or something. That's no zero days. So even if you feel like totally lazy and you're just like, maybe you're sick, maybe you're just having an off day. If you sit down and do even a little bit of something, technically you have done something and thus it's not a zero day. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be like, a, it doesn't have to be something new as well. You could sort of repeat something that you did previously. But that even helps to, like all this like sort of study of how memory works, it helps to retain things through repetition, right? So even doing something old that you've already done, that helps. So this is just a cool approach toward just keeping it really simple and having a very simple rule that you follow that you 
do at least something to advance toward your goal yeah. every day, regardless yeah. of how small and uh, incremental that thing may seem. And so one thing, one thing I, one twist I did for, I mean, obviously do some coding every day while I was going through free code camp. But then the other thing was to blog about it. And blogging is like this whole, it can range from like a super long post and like with all fancy graphics and stuff. But for me, it was just like note taking, right? Like every day I would just have an artifact of like the work I did that day, some notes to my future self, right? And it would just be for me. And that was my no zero day thing as well, which was just to, to blog about my journey. Awesome. And we'll talk a little bit more about learning in public and your approach toward that in a little bit, because that's something you're really well known for. But first, I just want to learn a little bit more about your background. So you grew up in Singapore and you came to the U.S. as an international student for university. Yeah. Yeah. What was that process like coming from Asia over to North America and adapting to our crazy college culture? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm being from Singapore, speak English as a first language. I always like to make fun of Americans who find out that I'm from Singapore and then they say, but your English is so good. And instead of laughing, I just go, thanks. I worked really hard on it, but it's totally like we, we converted the entire country to English by industrial policy. So we speak English fine. We have American TV shows fine. I went to a good high school and that in a kind of like a special program that that focuses on sending people to I think we're like the top Oxford Cambridge feeder school that's like their claim to fame I guess and but I really didn't like the sort of British educational system of like dusty rooms and everything builds up to a big final at the end and I liked a little bit more freedom in, in, in terms of what to learn so I applied to an American school and got accepted and came over. Awesome. And what did you end up studying in school? I studied finance, business, and international studies. That was the double major. That used to like be a huge part of like my identity. How like colleges that will do like dual degree programs, and you're like you feel special because you're earning two pieces of paper instead of one piece of paper. That completely doesn't matter. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I was very interested in finance from the get go because I thought that was important to how the world runs itself and. If I could get in, involved in that, that would be ideal. And so, so that, that eventually brought me to my career in finance. Yeah. And you spent, how many years were you working in finance? Six. Yeah. Six. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's a pretty big industry. What specifically were you working on most of the time? Okay, cool. So I should probably mention this as well. So as uh, for a lot of Singaporeans to afford college, we get scholarships from the Singaporean government. And the deal is you they pay for college and you come back and work for them. So I got a, co- I got a scholarship from the Central Bank, the MAS in Singapore. And so after I graduated, I came back and worked for them for a year. The deal was to work for six years. And I was regulating hedge funds. And while I was regulating them, I realized that like, like the smart people are not the people regulating the hedge funds. The smart people are like the ones in the hedge funds. So, so I quit and, and then, and so, so I, so I did regulation for one year and then I switched to a banking uh, role. So I did sort of sales and trading uh, type role where I uh, traded anything from interest rate swaps, currency derivatives, and just anything in that sort of fixed income commodities and currencies arena. Anyone in finance will know what I'm talking about. So I did that for two years. And then eventually I got, uh, and during that whole process, uh, a lot of banks will pay to help you get your CFA. And the CFA is like a certified financial Chartered financial analyst. Yeah, that thing. That's like a. It's like an industry. Like everyone has it, right? Um, 
You so, have to have one to run a mutual fund, right? You don't have to have one, but it helps to give you a lot of credibility. So I think that's the rule. So because otherwise you have to like study for a bunch of series, like six or seven or something exams. So th- those are the sort of regulatory side of things. But anyway, so buying, selling options and stuff. And then, but because once I got my CFA, I had a few friends from college call me up and ask me if I wanted to join them in starting a new team in a large hedge fund in, in buying and selling stocks. So this was, this is going over from sort of large sort of macro interest rate and bonds and stuff to individual company stocks. So a little bit of career change, but still within finance and also switching from the sell side where you're serving customers to buy side where you are the customer. So so then I switched over there and I did that for two years. And eventually like that was my dream, right? That was before I entered college, I was like, I want to be in hedge fund buy and sell stocks, speculate on sort of global macro trends and invest in companies and do all that stuff. But like as someone who's not in it, you sort of idealize what that is and the reality is quite different. And so, so I mean, that's a that's the sum total of what I did in finance, but I can talk about the burnout piece if you want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Like how did you, so I'm curious, what was it? rewarding did it feel fun did you make a lot of money i guess a lot of the reasons people go into finance have to do with making money right yeah i'll I'll talk about that so the early days when you don't make a lot you don't make that much money especially because you're just a junior and something they don't tell you when you go like the first job out of college is so important because it typecasts you for the rest of your jobs so even though i had a a good degree from good school they're just like you're just a regulator so you're not going to be able to go into the types of even one year out of school right i my cv took a negative hit to my to my sort of due due to my experience working at a regulator anyway so i was earning like like 50 grand as a trader and that got bumped up slowly as I moved on and I did very well there and then by the time I but it shoots up it more than doubles when you go over to the buy side so that's why a lot of people on the sell side in finance want to go over to the buy side so in the buy side I was making like 150k base and the bonuses can go up to more than a year of bonus so it's I think I got up to like 350 total my first year and in a hit. wow 350,000 US yeah Wow. And that was your first year? Yeah. Wow. And just to give you an, an, an idea, like it's a three-person team. My team was, and this is typical for a lot of like large multi-manager hedge funds. It's a three-person team running a billion dollars. And if and your goal is to like, let's say, make 10% of that, right? So that's 100 mil. The, the fund takes, the, the fund's investors take X amount and you get this like 300, 300K is a, is a rounding error, right? On, on, on that kind of money. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's just like things point zero three percent of the things, fund. Things scale in that order. Anyway, so that like I would actually char- characterize myself like I say I was average. I will not say that I was a good hedge fund analyst. I did what I was supposed to do. I did what people around me were was doing, but I wasn't coming up with something like wildly original that was profoundly insightful i think maybe if i had a was working under a different boss and i had more time i might have been that kind of analyst and that would be that would have been my ideal but i it was just clear in my two years there that i was not going to just going to be sort of middle of the road and it was also a very stressful job in the sense that a lot your self-worth your compensation, your your value, your feeling of like, do you belong in this job? Rides on certain events that you're taking a risk on, and when you're early on, you have to be right, or you're just bad, and you just get kicked out of the industry. So I think I was average as well on that, but just like that, that that sort of, I don't know, that stress. Yeah, that's, that's the stress. Like I, so 
the there was like one specific moment at which I sort of peaked and then burned out, which was this was one night which I had a big earnings day the next day, right? Earnings day is where like people announce their quarterly earnings, and then the stock can move up or down a lot by a lot, right? Just because it's new information that's public, right? And so I had a lot riding on that stock, and I had I started having heart palpitations was as I was like sort of trying to sleep, and I thought it was like a full on heart attack. I mean, I've never had a heart attack, but I was like, is this a heart attack? This feels like a heart attack. You like touch your chest and you're like, blah, blah, blah. and and I was just like, because I, I lived alone. Uh, and if I just died in my bed, like from this job, like that would just not be a good outcome, right? Like it's just like then the <laughs> Right. Yeah. You're not going to be able to spend that 350K you made. Yeah. Right. So like they, they pay you, you work really hard. There's there a few nights I slept on, under my desk because I just couldn't be bothered to go home. And then, and for what, right? Like, you make some rich people even richer. You get rich yourself. That's true. But just like, so that, that, that was the one thing where I was just like, all right, this is like, I'm average at this. This is like not good for health. Uh, you get paid well, but then you, you don't have time to spend it. Like, is this what I, is this what I want to do? And the other, and then this, uh, the one other thing I want to point out about the sort of hedge, the hedge fund industry, I guess, is that it's a continual black hole of ideas. Uh, that's what I, that's what I sort of sum it up as. And what I mean by black hole is like everything that, so let's say you have a trade idea, right? And you buy a stock, it goes up. Like we'll do it, right? Like that's the best possible outcome that your trade idea worked out and you made money on that. But the next year, you need to top that. That's just how it works. Like it's a ratchet of just like, continual like what's next what's next so even after your trade is done you need to come up with the next trade or you're just not as good anymore so the saying in the last industry that in the financial industry is you're only as good as your last trade that is not that is true to a large extent people who've made historical trades like john paulson can make one trade that worked out fantabulously and then they're famous for the rest of their life but most of us, you have to be, you're only as good as your last trade. So you have to be disciplined. You have to continually have ideas. It's called idea velocity. You have this like whole tracker of like what's next and what's the next catalyst and all that. And it's just a, it's an unending black hole. Like, like let's say your idea did not work out. Okay, now you have to work twice as hard to make it back to where you were. So, so that's all that's sort of like the financial math that's going on in my head. Like It's like the meta game, right? There's the game, which is like you try to make money. And then the meta game is like, is this right for you? And so like, I was already having those ish, those questions. And then my boss essentially got offered a bigger, better position at a competing firm and he left. So, so my team got dissolved and that was the catalyst for me to say like, all right, so I have, I'm still part of the firm and I can interview around to join similar other teams, but am I jumping to more of the same, right? Cause I, I have some months of, of like figuring it out time. And essentially I decided that I just like, this just didn't interest me anymore. Like it didn't seem, it didn't seem like sustainable. <laughs> right. Yeah. It sounds like constantly having to top yourself. And if you are wrong, having to recoup that and then <laughs> top yourself. It's a double top yourself or I don't know what the, right. Yeah, ex exactly. Right. So, so that's just how it works. The other, and the other thing that's a black hole about it is that all the investment memos and all the writing, I did a lot of good writing, like people really liked it, but it was property of the firm and it was, it's private and I no longer have it. It's not something that belongs to me. And obviously that's very different in tech where a lot of stuff is open source. So anyway, so, so the way I transitioned, I, I started having an interest in tech is we had, so Bloomberg is like the behemoth in, in the financial industry. I'm sure you know about it. Yeah. The terminals and yeah, yeah. I guess they have like hardware, software, vertically integrated well, solution. Well, they're no longer hardware anymore. So 
they used to be hardware, but then now everyone has their own hardware. So, so Bloomberg has, I think, like three main parts. So they offer information. So like in a few commands, you can punch it in and pull up the information that you need to do your work. The second one is they are a, ne- a social network. So they, every single person on the, on, on the street on Wall Street is on Bloomberg and you can chat with each other. And that's for doing trades. That's for organizing meetings. That's for whatever. So they were Slack before Slack. And the last bit is news. So, so in there, the sort of the premier, like at par with sometimes better than Wall Street Journal in terms of their financial news coverage. So that bundle is very compelling, right? Like where else are you going to get that? Anyway, so, so there are a bunch of people trying to kill Bloomberg just like there are a bunch of people in tech startup land trying to kill WordPress. And one of the startups trying to kill Bloomberg was the company that I eventually started working with because they were having some traction within my office. And like as a hedge fund analyst, you're, you like, you get to, you know, you get to interact with a lot of vendors and see what's doing well and who's doing what. These guys seem to be doing really well at this company called Send. So I eventually just like asked them for a job, like straight up. The CEO was coming to present their company and their products and I just walked him out and just said, hey, like, are you guys hiring? And that's, I think that's a really good way into the tech industry, like not knowing how to code. So I do know, I did know a bit of VBA and Python, but it was for number crunching rather than for making any products. So, so just when you say that's a good way into, into, into tech, like basically transitioning into a company that's already in your current industry that works more, that's more technologically intensive than your old. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so you come in, right. And your value add is not the tech, but you know, the user because you were the user. Right. And like every startup lacks domain knowledge because a, a lot of them are technologists trying to solve a problem, which they don't personally have. I'm sorry. I wouldn't say every startup, but you know, you know what I mean? Like a, a lot of startups that are trying to apply themselves, they need people who are like super users who have a sense of like what they, what what their customers want because they were the customer. It's just a very, it's a very good way to, to get in. I don't, I wouldn't say it's like conventional, especially cause I, I just, I got a product manager role. A lot of more established startups will not let you do that, but you can sort of come in as like a biz dev or customer support uh, and work your way up. So that's how, yeah, that's how you, be, that's how I became a product manager without being able to code. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was fun for a year. I definitely like, liked the vision and the setup a lot more than the eventual outcome, which was not very good. We had our differences, me and the founders. And when you're a product manager, and it, I think this happens a lot with startups where the founder was the original pro- chief product officer, right? Like they were responsible for the product. That's why it is what it is today. But when you hire your first product managers, it's hard to let go of your baby. And that's essentially what you have to do if you want your product managers to, if you want to delegate, right? You can't be like, you can't, you have to let the buck stop with someone else. And you can't be an ever sort of, you can't be hovering behind someone, second guessing everything that they do. Um, Because then nothing that product manager says or does means anything if they always have to refer everything to you, right? So that's essentially what happened with me. But I also realized that a lot of my bottlenecks were not sort of product related. It was just engineering related. We just didn't have enough good engineers. Like, and the ones that we did have weren't very productive. And a lot of times I just wanted to do stuff myself. Like I was like, this is so easy. Our customer wants this. We could make, get this done tomorrow if we if I just had a good dev. And we had like two good devs out of 50. And they were busy because they're they good devs. So like, I was just like, All right, I need to learn how to do this, right? And so, and that's when you start taking matters into your own hands, and that's how I started looking around and found Free Code Camp. 
So it's a long story. That's really interesting. I don't know if this is common. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So, so your personal frustration as a product manager trying to get things done yeah. with a, an ineffectual team, especially an ineffectual large team, which I think a lot of people can relate to. Was This was in still in Singapore? No, I wasn't. I've not been in Singapore for 10 years. This is in New York. Okay. Okay. Yeah. A lot of organizations just hire entirely too many people and they don't necessarily hire the right people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of managers think that developers are like interchangeable and, and things like that. So yeah, I encountered that a lot. I've come across teams that have like 20 or 30 devs and it's unclear who's doing what. And just, there's like this kind of zone that you get in where you've got like a good PM and a good team of devs and they can basically take over the world. It's very rare. But, and it's yeah. probably a two pizza team, right? And it's yeah. Can you go into detail on what you mean by two pizza and Jeff Bezos? Okay. Yeah, um, sure. I mean, yeah, I know. And maybe not all the listeners know. So, so Jeff Bezos has this, has a lot of really awesome management philosophies. And one of them is on any project, the maximum team size that should be on it is however many can be fed by ordering two pizzas, which is like, I don't know, like 10 people. I don't, uh, depends on how much pizza you eat. I eat a lot of pizza. So <laughs> <laughs> it'd just be me on the team. Yeah, I pull my weight in, in, uh, in the pizza hierarchy, but it makes sense because like the more, did you know that the team that invented the iPhone that created the iPhone in 10 months, that was a two pizza team. That's a, that's I mean, I would say, I would say that's surprising, but from what I know about how work actually gets done, it's usually just a few seriously driven people who are able to communicate well. And yeah. communication is one of the biggest right. obstacles in in really accomplishing anything. I, actually, I, communication is like the symptom. The real cause underlying the symptom is egos. like And just like... <laughs> The number of different opinions, right? Like it just combinatorially explodes like factorial N. And you, if you increase N, you're just increasing it exponentially, right? So that's, that's just how, that's just, I mean, that's just how teams work. And I definitely do not blame the startup that I was with because I did run into this situation again. And I have this whole huge pet peeve, like how much ink we spill, virtual digital ink, we spill on hiring and none on management. Like for, I think like, it's like the ratio of amount of time that we spend talking and saying like, oh, what's the best interview practice? And like, how do I whiteboard? Hi, we don't. We do not whiteboard. We're better than you. That's so ridiculous compared to the amount of ink that we spend on good management practices and like project management, career development, training. Like that, I think the ratio is like 10 to 1. Like it's just ridiculous how much time we spend on hiring instead of- Yeah, it's got to be 10 to 1. And, uh- and managing. In the U.S., training budgets have dropped dramatically over the, since like the 1960s and 70s. Really? Yeah, companies just don't do as much internal training. That's The good news is that's changing, and training budgets are growing because companies are realizing it was a mistake to not do more training. The reality is you can probably pick pretty much anybody off the street and just train them <laughs> internally and ramp them up to be like a really effective employee, but... Most companies are just looking for somebody who already is like perfect in every single respect. Mm-hmm. And then they think that bringing that person on, hey, we don't have to train them. Right. They just know what to do. But that's wrong too because they you still have to onboard people and make sure that they know the team members and understand the norms and all that stuff. Yeah. I think one thing, I mean, cultural onboarding is important and I think that's a sort of 
inviolable aspect of onboarding. But one thing, like we devs, we enable it. We enable this, like we can spend less on training because we train ourselves in nights and weekends. Like it's expected, right? To have that verdant green GitHub. It's not expected, but like, you know what I mean? Like, like everyone like does their own like learning on their own, does their own side projects to be a better dev and the company pays for none of it. And I feel like in other industries, that's not how it works. Like you, you have training days. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's a training. When I talk about training budgets being down, that's across all the different industries. Yeah. Okay. But the great news is there are so many amazing coding boot camps and other kind of vocational training programs that like employers can basically delegate the training to. So even if they themselves don't have like world-class training capability to help bring their Java developers up to speed on like mm-hmm. Node.js and stuff like that, there are tons of local companies that are focused on this. And you went to an intensive coding boot camp as well. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, so first I did seven months of six to seven months of free code camp. So I don't want to trivialize that at all. I think that I my intention actually was to just be just get good enough off of free code camp and just be a just go be a dev. Um, so so that I did that did no zero days. I definitely I actually burned out in the middle. So in the old syllabus, I think you have your new syllabus up up and running, right? In, in the old syllabus, there was the front end curriculum. Then there was like a data viz. And then it was a back end or it was like a full stack thing? Yeah, that's correct. So basically it was front end, data viz, back end. And the front end part was much more developed yes. than the data viz and the back end. <laughs> so 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 for I, I don't know your your completion rates, but I think it was like uh, my my guess is like I don't know, it's like six to one in terms of like people who complete front end and they're like, oh, look, I got the fancy cert. And then they're like, yay, I'm done. You're not because completing the rest was really hard. Yeah. And yeah, that's one of the reasons we actually changed the name of the certification to responsive web design. And then we had front end libraries and we had a algorithms and data structures, calling it like the subject you're studying rather than like front end development certification sounds like a professional certification that like oh i'm ready to be a front-end developer because i have my front-end developer certification so we changed it away from job titles because of that inadvertent confusion (laughs) but yeah a lot of people did think that they were just ready to go out and get a job and from day one we've always told people learning to code is hard it's going to be a very time intensive process there are no shortcuts and unfortunately (laughs) we due to a bad naming convention uh which just shows you how important names are I mean, it's, I don't think it's just the names. Like I definitely did not take the certificate seriously, right? Like it's, I'm not going to go like, Hey, look at my cert. Don't give me a job, but it's just more like the rampant difficulty is just higher. And it's just natural that it, that would be that way. But the, the support for free code camp drops off just because obviously the, the amount of people available to, to contribute and to help and teach also drops off, right? Just naturally as a ratio of that. So yeah. Would, and yeah. thankfully all that's been fixed yeah. <laughs> and like our, one of the reasons was we didn't actually have lessons for data visualization yeah. or for we had lessons for backend but most of it was just we were using node school <laughs> which is another great open source project but now we've got our own in-house curricula for everything and everything is covered in exhaustive detail yeah so yeah plenty of people just jump straight into like the api and microservice certification yeah and things like that and and that's 
I, I don't want to give the impression. I, this is old free code camp. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's been a work in progress. This was probably 2016, 2017. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been it's been a couple. Of, I'm really I'm just really glad that it's that it's that the new syllabus has been launched and I can tell people to just go there instead of beta.freecodecamp.org. And uh, what was I going to say? Yeah. And at the time, I think the free code camp meetup in New York because I was in New York. I wasn't that active, so I just like didn't have any support. I was essentially on my own. And the way I, I feel ashamed about telling you this because you're like the teacher of Freeco Camp. But the no way, worries, dude. The way I finished the a lot of this the curriculum in Freeco Camp, especially the, the back end and full stack sort of projects, you look up other people's projects and you copy them extensively, right? Like that's just how it like. Nothing's documented. Right. You kind of reverse engineer other people's <laughs> end products. There's no shame in doing that. I mean, we offer like, we have example apps that we tell you to reverse engineer, essentially. Mm-hmm. The new projects are much better because they have test suites that like walk you through in a sane way. Like, okay, get this up. Okay, now that you've gotten this up, get this up. Yeah. And the tests pass and you know that you're moving in the right direction. A lot of the work we've been doing is around smoothing the difficulty yeah. Uh, the learning curve. Yeah. And just announced, you heard it first here on the Free Code Camp podcast, unless you happen to also hang out on the forum a lot. But we're working on a completely new version of the lessons. The certifications and the final project will be the same. Okay. But the lessons themselves are being overhauled to all be project focused. So learn JavaScript by building a role playing game. Oh. Uh, learn advanced JavaScript by building a fitness tracker app. So you'll build up these apps line by line, getting test after test to pass, and you'll build up this project. So it'll be a smoother on-ramp for building your own projects because you'll have kind of this more guided path. But every... All of the learning will take place through building projects. That's so cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all for that. (laughs) Obviously. All right, man. Coming to Free Code Camp on your computer in 2019. Anyway, so, so, so I just want to give the framing for why I felt like I wasn't good enough, right? Like at the, by the end of Free Code Camp, even though, and I leaned on Meteor a lot and Meteor is obviously like a stagnant technology. And I would it, say it's a mature technology. It's found its use and Sasha Grief would tell you this. It's, you happen to be in the Sasha Grief interviewer club. Yes. You and I have both interviewed him. He's a prolific developer and a heavy user of Meteor. Absolutely. Uh, and, and Meteor didn't end up having such a general purpose open-ended use as it was originally intended. Ended up having a more niche use, but it's very good for that. Yeah, I prefer your words. So yeah, it is mature. I just like, I felt like it was too much, like there was too much abstracted away from me that I didn't know what I was do- actually doing. You know what I mean? Like, because it helps you so much, then like when you run into problems, you really get stuck. Like, and that's, at least that's how I felt. I did, I, I'm not sure when exactly I interviewed Sasha, Sasha as well, but I think it was around when I finished Recode Camp and I interviewed Sasha as a guest host for the Software Engineering Daily podcast. Go listen to it. If it's a fantastic podcast. Sure, I'll link to it in the notes. Yeah. And and so like, I just like didn't feel good enough. Like, And I think a lot of Recode Campers will sympathize. And obviously there are Recode Campers who finish and just get jobs and they get great jobs. I didn't feel like I was one of them. I, I, didn't, feel, I didn't feel like I was ready. And I think it's, Wholly just me because I'm a smart enough guy. I could probably have done something on Upwork or some freelance thing for a friend and built my experience up that way. But I just felt like, okay, so like I had this hang up, right? And it's not clear to you as a, as someone learning from FreeCodeCamp, like what the different eras of JavaScript are, right? So there, there are a whole bunch of different uh, paradigms that are thrown in there. Like what's the difference between Grunt, Gulp, and NPM scripts and Webpack and 
like when did these when did each of these things come into fashion and why did one replace the other and all that and so the one for me was jQuery I was like jQuery is so important in so many different sites but they all seem to be older sites and then the newer ones don't really use them but then like a lot of Stack Overflow answers will use jQuery and all that I was just like I just I don't get jQuery right like I I don't. I, I mean, it's obviously super important. There's so much important stuff being built on it. Obviously, it seems to be a bit legacy now, which is true, by the way. John Rizik is the creator of jQuery, and he works at Khan Academy. And the most fantastic thing, this is an aside, and the most fantastic thing I heard uh, him in a podcast recently saying he's at Khan Academy telling them to rip out the thing that he built, which is fantastic. Yeah, we ripped it out, and we're probably going to take it out of the curriculum soon. Yeah. It is still super useful, and it's not like, the things you learn when you learn jQuery aren't things that will cross over like to yeah. DOM manipulation in general. Yeah. It's still super useful. It's just that it's like uh, people hate to add any bloat at all to their <laughs> JavaScript. And jQuery is a fairly large library as far as libraries are concerned. And you could definitely argue that most of those things could be done in native it, JavaScript. Yeah. And again, like no objection to something being mature, no objection to something being older. But it's just the magic, like the amount of stuff that it does for you. And I don't know what it does. That really kills me. And that, that probably like is a good trait to have as a dev. But um, I had this eventually got, up, got into this state where I was just like, I need to know how to make my own jQuery, right? And there are a bunch of tutorials out there. But like just to be good enough at JavaScript to make your own jQuery, like I felt like that was a good metric for me to judge whether I was good enough at JavaScript. I know it's, a, it's like arbitrary, but like it's like a good level of like, hey, you, you can do anything you want. Right. So so that's where I was at when I started looking around for boot camps. And and the boot camps, I think Hack Reactor does like I would like do I would actually go to the campus of the boot camps, do the tour, and then ask like by the end of this, can I make jQuery? And they'll be like, Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> and I think I was just like overly hung up on this like this vision of like that's my bar. That's where I will say I'm a dev. Obviously there there is no bar. Anyway, so 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 I looked around and, and this is where we get to the boot camps part, right? Like I looked around and applied to a bunch of boot camps and I got into most of them because of Free Code Camp. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Thanks. And a lot of coding boot camps use Free Code Camp as their pre-coursework. Some of them even use it as their as part of their curriculum, and we encourage that. If any boot camp, totally, op, like people who run boot camps, or if you're thinking about creating a boot camp in your city, yeah, I encourage it because there's no substitute for like learning in person and having like a cohort of people who are highly motivated sitting right next to one another working through it. Oh. I think it's. I think this is just the early days. Like any any announcement of the death of boot camps is highly exaggerated. Yeah, paraphrase yeah. the then, famous quote. Yeah, <laughs> Mark, <laughs> I think it's Mark Twain, but everything's Mark Twain. So yeah, I mean, I should also mention. So there was one part of the three code camp, I guess, like expectations that I did not complete, which was working on a project with another dev that's for a nonprofit. I tried that. I did not get any, I think you and I have talked about this where I couldn't figure out how to get a client. I didn't, I just, I was like available for like a month. I had a partner and then like, I think we sent in an application and we didn't manage to, to get a nonprofit client. And I wanted to learn how to work in like a Git workflow for a personal individual user is so different from a Git workflow for team and having proper review process and testing. I didn't do any of that, right? Like I did basic testing, but it wasn't anything like substantial where it was peer reviewed by someone else. Um, yeah. And I'll tell you right now, one of the reasons we discontinued doing like the what I call one-off nonprofit projects yeah. is because there wasn't as much standardization and 
it was like, okay, you're working on a team, but it's just a team of two people and you're working <laughs> with a nonprofit. And like a lot of the standards that you get from being in a big public open source project, like the projects we run now, like Mail for Good, for example, is our open source, extremely cheap email client. You basically just pay Amazon like 0.01 cents per email. It's like 10,000 emails for a dollar or something like that. So yeah, instead of working on those projects now, you just work on big open source projects because those have established norms and teams of contributors and things like that. And then nonprofits make heavy use of those, including FreeCodeCamp itself, which is 501c3. And a lot of the people who use mail for good are nonprofits, but anybody can use it because it's open source with a very permissive license. But I digress. <laughs> you were saying... No, I mean, I just think like it takes all sorts, right? It takes all sorts of projects. Small nonprofit work is fine. Large open source work is also fine. I think it's, I'm a little intimidated by it. So I like to have more control over the project. Anyway, long story short, like that's why you go to a bootcamp, right? You want, you want to have in-person instruction. You want to have people that are learning alongside you and struggling and you can help each other out. You want to work in a team without, before you actually do it professionally. I applied around and the hardest one to get into, the hardest test, the hardest application test, that's the one I picked because the reasoning was that's the highest bar, right? So the one I did the entire free CoCap syllabus, I want to work with other people who like meet that bar, which a lot of People who applied boot camps don't. And that's just like because they just spent less time prep preparing. So I went to Full Stack Academy in New York, and that was my boot camp experience for three months. Still no zero days throughout the entire thing. Still blogging to myself. And then I added additional responsibility, which is podcasting. So started my own podcast about the journey, interviewing other people as they go through the podcast, as they go through the boot camp. And I called that imposter syndrome, <laughs> which is like... I thought Kai was a cute name for a podcast about boot camps. Yeah, a cute name for a horrible phenomenon. <laughs> exactly. So I actually discontinued the podcast because I felt like it was unduly telling people, prompting people to say, to like talk about their imposter syndrome, which like, like everyone sort of has, but then like we also like sort of know how to deal with it. It's just like not interesting, right? Like, well, I mean, yeah, I think you and I have both suffered from imposter syndrome. Yeah. I've, been interviewed by Business Insider. They wrote an article about my imposter syndrome. So yeah, I'm not afraid to come out and say, yeah, I was a 30-something teacher yeah. who was surrounded by developers who'd all gotten computer science degrees. And I was, it was almost like, what are you doing here? I mean, they weren't necessarily saying that to me, but I was saying that to myself. Yeah, And I guess you were in a similar boat as I mean, you were coming from a more quantitative background, with certain, which certainly helped. Yeah, Can you talk we, about your imposter syndrome? Well, the whole applying to boot camp was part of it, right? Like, I felt like I needed at least something, some, like, semi-formal process before I, I felt ready to apply for a job. But there's so many other free co-camp people who don't feel the need for that and just get jobs anyway. And so I feel a little bit, like, I think that's the expression of my imposter syndrome, that I needed to go through boot camp before doing it. And, like, once, as I went through the boot camp, I realized that actually I there's a lot of stuff I already learned in FreeCodeCamp. So it was like duplicating that work. Obviously, duplicating it solidifies it, right? And I actually had the opportunity to teach it to some of my fellow students. Um, and that's all solidifies it even more. So I just got really, really, Absolutely. really good, right? But like, I just, you know I mean? Technically, I didn't need it. Just like, but I'm just saying like going to the bootcamp itself is the imposter syndrome. Right, like the fact that the feeling that I needed it, it it helps. It's it's that's well. So I mean, I would argue if it helped, then you probably did need it, or you certainly 
benefited from it. So yeah, yeah. Need you, know, need you could argue like, what do you really need, right? Like yeah. some water and <laughs> some shelter. To- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you where it helps. Where it helps the most, right? Uh, is which is in the job uh, hunting, right? Because if you're if you're job hunting on your own after f- finishing free co camp, and that's all you have to your name, it's very much like you have to hustle because there's a lot of other people who can do that. There are fewer people who finished a boot camp and, a, and one that's known to be hard and one that has other graduates of that boot camp coming back to recruit, right? So, so it just is a fact that they do help with hiring because they're invested in, in your career outcome. And so beyond, beyond the signaling of having completed the, a prestigious coding boot camp, did they help you with the actual job placement? Yes. So there's a jobs day at the end. Right. And they'll organize like all the employers in New York to come down and you go around in like a speed dating type of scenario, like a three to five minute interview. Just see what you're about. Um, the funny thing is that like coming out of a boot camp, every student's story is more or less the same. Um, so <laughs> it's like, hey, you know, what projects have you done? Years, same as the, the last 30 people you spoke to. So, so that's not really interesting. The, the interesting part is everyone's backgrounds, right? Because you, when you hire for, when you, when you want, as an employer, you want to hire a bootcamp grad, you don't hire a traditional CS degree background person. And, but all of us come with different backgrounds. I come with a finance background. I had, there was another guy who was a chef, right? There's another guy, there's another girl who was a teacher. And like, there's just like, everyone brings their own backgrounds and they're sort of dual class. I, I actually call this, you know how like when you play a game, like RPGs, like you pick a class, like you're like a warrior, right? And then you, you like level up in some levels if, as in your warrior class. And then you decide to dual class to, to get to pick up some other skills. So you're like a warrior mage, right? And then you can learn to cast spells and you take a step back a little bit. But then after, after you, you're like sort of equivalent level with both sides, you really start to hit your stride in terms of being able to do multiple things at once. So, so people, you come to boot camps to hire dual class uh, people who bring that sort of domain knowledge, industry knowledge, uh, work experience, which is non-trivial, all that stuff, right? To 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 being a dev, and a lot of like like developers who don't have like the sense of like business, the sense of customer support, like just like the broader world around them, and that's where they fall behind. So I guess like that's what I'm trying to say is like when people interview you at at a boot camp, they look for what's your combination, what's your story, right? What's what do you bring to the table to my team of existing devs? Who are just that. So that's how that's kind of how I looked at it. Yeah, because everybody spends time with their career. I mean, assuming they're organized and not just kind of like camping out in their mom's basement. Yeah. If they're actually out there trying to get things done and progress their career, then they've been progressing it in some direction or another and accumulating some skill set and domain expertise. And my my experience as a teacher and as a school director was invaluable in software development when I was working on education-focused tools. I don't think I would have created Free Code Camp if I had just been like a vanilla CS grad without any outside domain expertise. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, one of the people I admired the most was Emily Eastlake from, she, she was featured on my podcast, but also she was a teacher. She was a math teacher in a high school in New York, and then she decided that she wanted to code. But like, t- I think teachers do really well as teacher devs. Obviously, you're one of them, but not everyone is Quincy Larson. But I'm just saying like in general, the ability to explain complicated things in a simple manner, to, to 
public to do like essentially public speaking extemporaneously is important. Like that's what giving a talk mostly is, right? Like just like a lot of like the and to write documentation. Oh my god, that's teaching. Like a lot of the non dev stuff is teaching, and so I feel like teachers are really well set up for that. But yeah. I'll, I'll, okay, I'll throw in a plug for finance people. So there are a lot of finance people like me, right, locked up in banks and hedge funds. We're like very smart people and we're doing completely useless like <laughs> tasks. You're making richer rich people richer. We're making rich people richer. That is not useless. Okay, so so I will throw in one argument which is a lot of the a lot of the clients that we have are actually endowments, right? Institutions, nonprofit endowments, universities, endowments, whatever. But then also like insurance money, right? The, the, the people who run insurance, like invest your savings and your uh, insurance money into funds that are eventually run by people like I, like, like I used to be. So, so there is a general sort of like good there being done but it's very indirect but it's just general like it's not the best use of your intelligence like the best use of intelligence should be in public towards like a public facing good where the most people can benefit instead of like a private facing good where like a team of three people benefit at least that's like how i feel obviously that's a gross simplification of the complexity of finance but that's a general phrasing of since i've become a dev Tons of finance people have come to me asking for advice because they want to do the same thing because they know that their intelligence isn't being really used that well in finance. So that's, I've said my piece. (laughs) All right. Well, yeah, obviously finance is like really complicated and I don't mean to trivialize the entire industry because, you know, insurance and all those things are, you know, I know lots of actuaries and a lot of other people that I would consider in the finance industry and yeah, risk sharing is important. I mean, if you boil a lot of it down, the whole reason people get rich is to mitigate risk. Right. Capitalism works on efficient markets and people trying to compete with each other. If you stop trying to compete, then it becomes very inefficient and capitalism breaks down. Like you need, we actually need these people to price capital correctly. So it doesn't get misattributed. Oftentimes we've, as we found out they're, they're not very good at that. But like we just learn, right? We just keep getting better. But anyway, like as a career choice, I think that a lot of finance people would do a lot better if they'd move to tech like I'm doing right now. Right. And do you think a lot of people get pushed there because that's where the money is? Like their parents encourage them to go into tech or to go into finance? I I don't think parents. It's it's not like (laughs) the amount of work that you have to do. It's not a parent motivation. You have to be personally pushed to do that. And obviously the money is money's good. And you get to like I was sitting down with CEOs on a regular basis uh, talking about their businesses and that kind of access and privilege and just wealth of resources I could have. Yeah, just you you won't get that in many other jobs in your twenties, right? Like that's just that just doesn't happen. Anyway, so so so. It's funny because I, I did my job search, right? And it was like a career day. You have a career day, you sit around and you get some interviews and stuff. But then you also, you're also encouraged to look on your own. And that's where I interviewed with, with, I didn't interview with that many. So a lot of people, like, they have this whole thing about like interviewing, like doing 10 a day and then like racking up thousands. And like, I did a more focused approach where I was just like, what are the companies where if they offered me, I would really want to work for. And so, and so I interviewed with nine companies, including Google, which I would love to talk about. I, I don't know. I just, I don't have that good of a story, but. Yeah, go for it. I mean, Google's the big one. If you get a job offer from Google, it basically opens the other doors. <laughs> As Haseeb Qureshi explained to me, like once he got a job offer from Google, everybody started taking him seriously and he wasn't getting rejected anymore. Yeah. Cause yeah, it's, it's I guess it's a positive indicator. Uh, totally. Um, I mean, obviously Haseeb as 
a career changer and, and someone who wrote about it, his uh, job search experience. I obviously reference, referred to that post a lot. Uh, I think he's read it out on your podcast too. So I highly recommend that. As well as Patrick McKenzie's job negotiation blog post, which he wrote about again recently. Okay, so... so Great. I'll check the links for those in the show notes, by the way. Totally. So, but, so my personal journey, I applied to Google. They Actually, so... <laughs> so the... the uh, okay, this is another imposter syndrome thing. So Google was at the career day, right? And so there are like 30 employers, right? And then you go around and they pick you, you pick them type of thing. So you don't get to meet all 30 employers. And Google was there, but they didn't pick me. So they, so so I had the opportunity to go up and like just introduce myself and put my resume in front of them and kick off the process. And I didn't because I just, just like super intimidated. I was just like, there's no way, right? Like so I did not. And I actually, like, I just didn't do it for a month. And so meanwhile, I just like messed around with like other, other interview processes and we can talk about, okay, so, so I was finished the Google story. So, so eventually I decided to just man up and just like send in an email and saying, Hey, I know it's late because <laughs> you're already interviewing like 50 of my other cohort people, but are you still looking? And obviously they're still looking because they will interview every dev on the planet. You don't realize this. So, so another link I will refer people to, and if they're specifically interviewing at Google is Steve Yegi's blog post about, about interviewing at Google. I don't remember the title of the blog post, but basically he asserts that Google and other like large companies, like you are not, you're no different from the Google, the average Google dev, because just like the law of large numbers, they employ tens of thousands of developers and they're just going to go closer and closer to the average developer. And it, it's just a, a matter of crapshoot whether you get through their hiring screen or not. I think Steve Yegi himself failed the first interview that he went to. And then, and obviously he's a legend at Google, but like just, just the general sense of like, don't treat the interview as a validation of whether or not you're good enough. It's whether or not in that dice roll, you rolled a six or not. That's just more or less it. And so, so my interview process, they did, they did respond to my interview and they flew me out to Mountain View for an interview. And it was like, and it was like the worst possible setting for an interview you could ever possibly have because it was the day before Thanksgiving. Nobody wanted to be there, right? They just arranged it last minute because I, I had some existing, I was trying, I was like trying to squeeze them a little bit. Like I had some existing other offers from other companies. I was just saying like, hey, I, if you want to get a last look at me, like this is your chance. So they squeezed me in and I feel like that backfired because they were, they, they put me through five interviews on that day and it was a whole bunch of algorithm stuff. Some of which, one of which I don't think I did too well on, but others I did pretty well. And, but no, nobody wanted to be there because it's the day before Thanksgiving. So like hot tip, if you want to do your interview, try not to schedule it on the day before when no one wants to be there anyway, because <laughs> you're not going to get a good review. So, so I didn't, I did not get accepted there, but then another team offered to pick me up in New York and I interviewed there as well. And I eventually did not get it, but they said I was very close and they wanted me to apply again in 11 months to which I said, hell no. Right. Like that was some of the most grueling processes ever and had nothing to do with sort of building a product. It was just, can you figure out this algorithm? Yeah, just whiteboarding, basically the, the gauntlet. Right. So so they did not do whiteboarding. So no, there's no whiteboarding. So just anyone who wants to know about Google, they do not do whiteboarding anymore. They do give you a Google, a Chromebook and they interview you on Google Docs. You code in Google Docs. You don't code in an IDE. No, no syntax highlighting, no running of code, nothing. Just, just like 
Google Docs. And anyway, but uh, so it's like a whiteboard, but you get to type instead of having to use handwriting. Yeah, which is, I guess, progress is progress. It's just so weird, and it's like this whole like ritual. Anyway, like I, I don't mean to like like obviously they're screening for general software engineering talent, right? And it's not web development specific. They could their idea of an engineer is that they could throw you into any project, back end, front end, and everything in between, and you do fine. And obviously, I should have studied a bit more algorithms, I think. But just to set expectations again, it's not like cracking a coding interview is like these, the big green book in terms of like these kinds of algorithm interviews. The maximum you will have for any Google interview is 45 minutes. And you do not have the time to code even a heap sort in 45 minutes. So you should be like conversationally familiar. You should know the big O's and um, min and max of, and, and space and time complexity of those things. But Beyond that, you don't have to code it because you don't have time to code it. So, so it's a big load off my shoulders when I realized that I could just like skip a, a lot of the the heavier like red black tree re- rebalancing trees and, and stuff. The more advanced stuff, you need to be conversational, but I don't think you actually need to know how to code it from scratch because you just don't have time. Anyway, that's my hot Google tip from someone who didn't who did not get. Accepted. So, just to be clear, like you can basically just put like pseudocode like, and at this point it would step through this and it'd be in this time complexity and yeah let's keep moving like interviewers interested in how you think about the problem right they're not interested in valid code which is why they give you google docs instead of like a proper compiling ide environment right so yeah that's that makes a lot of sense so drilling on the different algorithms you'd say is probably less important than just understanding from a functional perspective like how everything fits together and yeah, so you should you should learn basics so it does not trip you up because there will be different levels, right? So it's not going to be like one question takes up the whole thing. It's going to be like, all right, part one, do this, which is expected to be easy. Part two, do this, which is a little harder. And part three is the one that you're going to spend the most time on. So if you trip up in parts one and two, you never get to part three, right? So so you want to drill, right? You want to drill on the basics, but then just don't drill on like the really complex algorithms because you're never going to get there anyway. And I would phrase it as like the person interviewing you is also a dev. So they just they know what you mean. They they just care how you think, and you can and if you can talk while you type, or comment or leave comments while you type, that's the best because they're gonna take your your code that you wrote and they're gonna pass it through their review committee, right? So the more comments you leave, the more sort of you show your your thinking and your ability to document clearly document your code. Does that help? Absolutely. I've never interviewed at Google, so <laughs> I know a lot of people who have, only a few people who've gotten offers, and only a few people who've turned down those offers. Oh. You turned down some pretty big offers, though, didn't okay. you, after your uh, coding boot camp? Right. So so I interviewed with Google, Spotify, had a brief chat with MongoDB, but never really got to an interview. And what was my other what was Jesus, this is going to sound... Moat. Okay, Moat. So Moat was multi-large ad tech company. Actually, I'm friends with one of their... The brothers of one of their co-founder, which is weird. Anyway, so so interviewed there and they loved me. And so one thing I did well in that interview, which it's just like, it just happened that way that it worked, was I did test-driven development for their algorithm interview. So just because like they, in that environment, offered like allowed me to do it. I wrote tests first for like... While understand, we're trying to understand what the question was, and then I coded my solution 
And when the test passed, the, the solution was correct, right? Like, so people love TDD and they don't see it enough in, in interviews. If you can see the opportunity to, to do TDD in an interview, go for it because it's super impressive. It doesn't take, it really doesn't take that much uh, effort as well. So, so, so Moat gave me my first offer and that was 120K right, right out of the bat. I was told, so the average for boot camps out of New York is between 70, it, the, the median is 70K. I was told like on the high end, expect 90K. So to receive 120K right out of the bat, either I got super lucky or the information's off, right? Like, or I'm worth more. Something like that, right? Like, so that's the sort of informational state. That's the free code camp X factor. With the free, yeah, no, totally, right? Like, and because I was more confident than my peers in the sense of like I've done everything twice in terms of if you treat free code camp like a boot camp, like I've done two boot camps. So, so people really like that. I mean, yeah. So, so the thinking behind turning that down was one: it's just the first offer, and if you look at optimal search algorithms, you and this is sort of misogynistically called the secretary problem you when you don't know what you're worth and you, you're looking around you should take the you should reject you should just like out of hand reject the first x offers like first half or two-thirds offers and then take the next one that comes along that's better than anything in that sampling region anyway so that's optimal stopping theory and that's algorithms applied to real life and i highly recommend people think about that but then don't take it too seriously because you don't have that many opportunities <laughs> right the reality is every month you spend on the job market is a month you're not getting paid and you're not advancing in your career right oh so so, so i will also mention i was getting paid i was doing some freelancing because while i was doing free code camp and doing going through my boot camp i was also tweeting about it and twitter is a very active source of dev job opportunities and I actually got two inbound offers to do some freelance work nothing big but just like hourly work for executing stuff that people wanted done but then they just didn't have a dev resource so so I didn't have some means to to pay for myself even though it was just a couple of months so this this is a great opportunity to for you to talk a little bit about learn in public and yeah you this is like the big thing that Sean Wang does right is <laughs> You learn in public and you've made basically a huge reputation for yourself just by documenting what you learn. Yeah. It's been a big part of it, right? Yeah. I mean, I have a whole spiel on that. Should we just do that? <laughs> okay. Launch into it, man. Launch into it. Okay. Learn in public. There's also, so first of all, there's a whole essay on that. I'm sure you'll link to it. And it's just my manifesto and a little bit like, I feel like I want to make it a nonprofit type of thing or a movement so I, I have no idea how to do any of this i need to talk to you and whoever else because like you should talk to alexander calloway yeah. of 100 days of code yeah. i mean that guy has yeah. accomplished amazing things yeah. so, so in his of, spare time out of the free code camp podcast that one is i think is my favorite uh, and then there's also hasib's essay but alexander's like he just has so much like there's just so much thought going behind everything, right? And every single book that he referenced, I was like, I need to read that. I need to read. That. So, so he's he's definitely an inspiration as well. But anyway, so like, I want to, I want, I, I this has done, this has worked out really well for me. I should probably explain what it is. So, learn in public is a simple binary choice of when you're learning, you can either learn in private, which most people do, or you can learn in public, which a lot of people get from the get go. Like, it's self evident in the statement, learn in public, but then they don't know how to do it and like what are the good ways to do it. And so, so, so I would like to show people how like good ways to, of doing that because it really benefited my learning as well as my career, right? And so, and so learning public is simply like producing, apparently, this comes from Brad Frost, producing creative, ex like learning exhaust. Like, everything that you learn, you need to produce something as, a, as an output. So, it could be a blog post, it could be a drawing, it could, it could be a talk, it could be just notes for yourself. It could be 
like just whatever, right? And just like leave trails for other people who are learning to follow because, and there, that, there's multiple benefits that come out of that because A, you're making, you're, you're the most recent expert in whatever you're learning. And so you have a beginner's mind, which experts do not. And so experts can explain things best for experts, but you can explain things for recent beginners because you're a recent beginner. And so, and so you help beginners that way. You're sort of giving back, but it's mostly selfish. I, and that's the thing. Like, it's not some form of like altruism, like, oh, like I'm so good of myself. I'm giving back. No, like you're just another person. You're, it's mostly selfish because what that is, it's a form of communication to your future self, right? If only just to say like, this is where I used to be. But then also like, sometimes you just forget and like, having notes from yourself, like that's going to be the best notes you ever received because that will just reactivate that part of your brain that, that went dark for a while. Yeah. And I'll tell you, there's no sensation quite like googling something oh, yeah. and having your own article pop up is mm-hmm. the answer yeah and then you're like oh awesome <laughs> i already know how to do this i just need a review yeah thanks pass me it's, it's great right and so and but i find right so all that is like par for the course right that those are like the base benefits but then something i really did not expect was that the, the experts the people who are like more advanced than you they will come out and help you and like for free and just because you're learning in public. And this is something I completely did not expect. I was just like, who, like I'm nobody, right? Like I'm writing about React.js and out of nowhere, Danny Romov will show up because that's what Dan does. He just like monitors React on Twitter all the time. Um, <laughs> he just shows up and he, he goes, this is wrong and you go fix it and you're better because you've been taught personally by Danny Bromov. And, and just it just happens. He's kind of on another level he, in he, terms of just... He's special, yeah. The amount of... He goes the extra mile. Let's put it that way. That's like the understatement of the year. But Dan Abramov goes the extra mile. But, but I'm just saying like, if you are like not that many... Okay, so like not that many people do this, right? So this is exploitable. Like this is like a hack. Because if you talk about someone else's thing and I guarantee you they'll read it, right? And then at a minimum they'll read it and then probably they'll respond to it and probably they'll tell you what's wrong. So it could be any, like I've talked to Brendan Eich this way. I've talked to <laughs> the creator of JavaScript. Like I, I talk to like people way above, way out of my league just because I'm talking about their thing and like they made it or that's their thing that they're the world's foremost authority on. They like helping people. It doesn't take that much effort, right, for them because it's something that they have at their fingertips anyway. And then what you do is, right, the stuff that you learn, right, A, you're, you've been wrong on it. So you like anything you've been wrong on, you remember instantly, right, because you've been publicly embarrassed by it. But I always like to say that you can learn so much on the internet for the low price of your ego. Like if you don't have your ego bound up in this whole thing and you're saying, Hey, I'm doing the work. Like, it's not like I'm trying to be in like an overnight expert and then just like publish like a random cliff notes thing. Like I've done the work. I've done, I, I, this is the best that I've got. Come at me. Like, I don't care. Right. This is not me. This is what I know as of right now. And if I'm wrong, I will change. I will learn and I will republish that. And what that does is that, that, that you amplify this person. Right. So like as someone who's been corrected on stuff, you can then turn around and go like, Hey, everyone who's been following me on this journey. I, I was wrong about this and this is why. And this is something that probably most of them share. This is a misconception that most of them share as well. So that's a really good way. Like, and that, that gives them back. So like having, giving them some, giving those advanced people some incentive to help you is by amplifying their message of like, hey, this is a common misconception in the community. You're the person I've chosen to correct this on. 
like it's your job now to pick that up and just go like, hey, everyone, like, like this is a misconception. You should really know this because this is interesting. That amplification, even though you're smaller than, you're probably smaller in reach than, than the other person, but like you're doing your bit. And I feel like that is a little bit of quid pro quo. Like it's always like a little bit of give and take whenever you talk with anyone. Like I'm talking to you right now, which is ridiculous, right? Because I benefited so much from free code camp, but like, I, I feel like I'll be able to you know, sort of relay my experience to, to, to my small group of people, which you may not be able to reach, but you want to reach them. Right. And it goes the same for anyone who's like running a large free open source project or something that they want to reach the maximum people with their message. And they, they love getting people recruited on that journey and they'll help you. They also get to practice their messaging. So Dan practices his messaging on me as well. So that that helps. But just like, I just want to get get it, get across that learning public has this general, like has these general stages of like beneficial for others, more beginner than you, beneficial for future you, and then also beneficial for people who are more advanced than you, but also helping you. That's my spiel. <laughs> That's a great... Great way to look at it. And I had to go and tweet your your quote about you can learn <laughs> you can learn so many things on the internet for the low price of your ego. Oh my god. That, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's totally true. I mean you have to be ready to be wrong. Yeah. And you have to be ready to have your mind be changed. And to be responsible about it. Like I don't want I don't want a whole bunch of people out there publishing wrong things just for the sake of it, right? That's not right. That's not that's disingenuous. You have to have done the work. You have to have said this to the fullest extent of my ability. I've researched, I've done the work, and this is what I think. Am I right? And, and and then you can be wrong because you have to ship. You have to ship something. No zero days, right? Like you have to do that talk. You have to, you can't just like be, st- so a lot of people are stuck in the opposite way of like, they cannot be, they cannot ever be wrong. So they will do all the research in the world and never ship anything, right? And so that's wrong too, because like you'll never learn that way, right? Like, so you have to have some sort of stopping point where you say, right, this is as much as I have time for it, as, as much as I've done, I'll ship it, whatever, the talk, the blog post, the drawing, whatever. If I get corrected, the responsible thing to do is to put addendums and corrections on there or bury it in the next blog post and the next one and the next one and the next one. Like you're just continuously learning and that sets up the feedback loop, right? If you're learning in private, there's no feedback loop. You're just pushing yourself in, in, in the comfort of your own home, which is fine. Like that's how most people do it. But I'm just saying like, this is what I did and it helped me tremendously, I think more people could do it. One of the ways that you learn in public is that you run a subreddit, a very popular subreddit that just hit 100,000 subscribers. You run the React.js subreddit on Reddit. How did that come about? Yeah. Uh, so so I don't like to call it run so much as moderate because um, you, you're definitely not in control. <laughs> Reddit? Not in control? Yeah, I mean, because uh, in, in Reddit, everyone's pseudonymous and uh, they can say whatever they want. And you, you only have very broad-based ability to control the flow of that debate. And so essentially when I was learning, so I've been a Redditor for four years. I mostly use it for memes and Marvel movies, movie spoilers and stuff. Like everyone has their own little interest points. A friend of mine, I introduced to Reddit. Like Reddit's for people who like, they, they come, it's special interest groups, right? Like that's just all it is. Like it's, the thing is as, as old as the internet, but just done in a good, in, 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 in the right way. So a friend of mine who like is a huge, tremendous hockey fan, but no one else around him is, he can go on Reddit and find his people, right? Like, and that's just 
that's just like so special to me, like the community of that. It's also asynchronous, which I like more than sort of these chat-based platforms like Discord and whatever. Anyway, so 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 I've been a Reddit redditor for a while. I always checked out the re- the reacts of Reddit, but didn't really find much going on there, and so I did not participate much in it. And I moved to Twitter instead. But then, and Dan Dan Abramov, because he is. Dan is active because he cares about the community so much and he cares about like how toxic we are towards other frameworks. Um, and so there was one of these days where there was a dis- discussion going on and some people were bashing some other framework I probably view in the subreddit. And that that really bothers Dan. It bothers me too, but it bothers Dan more than it does me because it, it seems it's seen to be representative of the React community, which we all know is like complete nonsense, right? Just like some random person's comment on the internet does not reflect the views of like a million plus developers, but whatever, it's visible, right? And there are not that many comments. So he was like, yeah, hey, next time you see this, you should ban, you should uh, remove it. And I was like, dude, like you can remove it because you're a mod. I'm not a mod. And he was like, yeah, do you want to be one? I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, and that was the essential sum of the mod application for React subreddit. <laughs> well, he trusts you. He knows you. He trusts you. Trust yeah. is what makes the world go around. Yeah. So, so he's trusted me before on a bunch of other things. So it definitely wasn't like a new relationship. So, 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 so yeah. And that point, by that point, so before that, I was doing a bunch of work already on, on the Reddit. Just, just like trying to make it better just because I wasn't that big on Twitter yet. And like, I'm not that huge in open source and whatever. The one way I can contribute is Reddit, right? So, so I was just like, all right, I'll, I'll do some service. So I, I started helping to run the beginner Q&A. So we answer anyone's beginner questions and we get about 500 Q&A a month. And, and then we also started running the job board. So people getting hired and people looking for jobs and people looking for devs, putting them on there on Reddit. Just like in general, like putting in place the basic things that you would expect a community to have, but they just weren't getting done. So I was already doing that work and then he got me to start being a mod. And so then it really picks up from there in terms of like, okay, like let's, how can we make this the one place, like a lot of people don't want to be on Twitter for like political reasons. They're just, they just don't like the platform, whatever. Right. How do, how can we make this the special interest for, for React? And it was just more about like getting people to post quality content and making sure that like, Anytime you've been out of the loop for a while, you can just go on the React subreddit and just go sort by the top posts of the month, week, year, and get a good sense of what has been going on in React. And so that's been the, the overall drive. I like to say that we help people get started in React, get jobs in React, and everything in between, which is like a nice tagline, but it just it just has too much. At the end of the day, it's anonymous. So so we hit 100,000 people last week. The Congratulations. Ah, uh, thank you. Again, like I always feel weird because... It's none of it's due to me. I just help to make sure that the conversation doesn't get too toxic. That's precisely your contribution. And that's one of the most important contributions you can make. Yeah. And then, and then as a mod of a subreddit, right, you are probably one of the most active people on the sub and you, therefore you set the tone by, by, by leading by example. So I post a lot of comments and code to code reviews and, and links and stuff. And because without you, things don't get done. So the lurker community, the lurkers on, so there's like a 99% rule in most of internet participation in terms of like 99, like for every comment view, there's 99 people who, who for every comment made, there's like 99 people who do not make comments and they just like passively consume content, which is similar to like the learning private, learning public thing. Um, and this is very true. Since you're a mod, you can actually see the stats. So, so we have something like 18,000 daily active users. And at any point in time, the top post will only have about 200 to 500 upvotes. So we have less than a percent. I don't even know what that percentage is, but we have, we have like 
a lot of passive viewers, right? And only a small community of people are active on that. And I believe that's true for general Reddit, but it's just like, I want to grow that engagement more because it's more about like, you don't get anything out of it if you're just like passively scrolling past. Like you should be talking about stuff actively, having your beliefs disproved. Like, again, you learn by being wrong. So, and, and the way you learn is you make a comment and then someone else says, hey, you're wrong and shows you the proof and you go like, all right, thank you. And so I'm always trying to do that. I'm always trying to, to go like, Post the best content, be active, like, hey, this is what's it like when people, like, a lot of people, a lot of people post memes, right? And stupid jokes. And, and when they write and when, when that rises to the top of the comment thread, it becomes the overriding theme of the discussion. But if you want to have substantive discussion about the content of the post, then you got to make that comment and like, hey, like, let's engage with the actual thing instead of making offhand stupid comments that you see a ton, ton, uh, time and time again. So I definitely think we're not there yet. I think that... We- Sometimes we get really insanely expert React people in there, and I love that. Like the React team has been active on it, and the React Native team actually recently hosted a an Ask Me Anything. So like the engagement from everyone is good. It could be better, is how I would phrase it. So I'm looking to do that going forward. Just making sure that the subreddit doesn't become toxic as so many subreddits do. Thankfully, not Freeco Camp. I moderate it, and we have several other moderators. And yeah, it's not nearly as active as React JS is. Because that's like a core infrastructure of the internet. But yeah, we do occasionally get like toxic posts and stuff and have to delete it. We had this hilarious guy. So I have fun. Do you have a fun monster? Can we trade like troll stories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Uh, So we had this guy, right? And he was like, I mean, he was like, it was something ridiculous. Like we have too many newbie posts in here, which we do have a fair amount of newbie posts, but actually it's kind of like 50-50 between advanced and newbie. And then he was like, too, too many newbie posts. And then he was like trying to assert his view of what uh, React hooks should be because everyone has their own opinion. And he was like, people were telling him, like pointing out flaws. And he was like, all of you should listen to me. I have like 20 something years in programming and you should listen to me because I'm a really advanced developer. And this is the clincher, right? And I have this, and I want this like national trophy in C plus development 10 years ago. And then he sent the screenshot of his trophy. (laughs) And he was like, look at this trophy. Look at me, look at this trophy. All right, I'm right. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> that reminds me of the story of like the guy who claimed that he or he won like the Blockbuster 1994 championship, video game championships, and then like this professional gamer who's like basically like gamer slash troll, like jokingly claimed that he was the winner, and then this guy took it like really seriously and went on a campaign to try to set the record straight. No, I won the 1994 Blockbuster <laughs> Championship. It's like, I guess it's some honor, but it is just really funny that this, like some people are really grasping at straws <laughs> to try to defend their legacy. And it, it almost goes back to what you were saying about only being as good as your last trade. Some people are still focused on their last trade instead of the, the path forward. But yeah, so he, he, posted a photo of a trophy and he really it was a genuine trophy like do you think he really trophy. won yeah yeah and so so he did he was second place <laughs> <laughs> it was 10 years ago though too right like 10 years ago it was just like so many different kinds of weird like i was just like i, I don't know like it's not even bad it's just funny we get we got a whole bunch of trolls but i i, I don't know it's <laughs> I don't know yeah if you had anyone like some people like this can be like on the like the spectrum. So I want to like some. They come to Reddit because they they have they they don't they want to interact in a pseudonym without their the rest of their baggage of their in person persona. So like you you get all sorts with Free Code Camp. Most of the issues we have are just people who don't understand basic 
politeness and basic manners and things like that. And and I attribute a lot of it to cultural differences, but you can't, you can give people the benefit of the doubt, but it's much better to get rid of one person whom you suspect is toxic than have five or six people just silently disappear from your community because of that person. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing. Like as, as hard as if anybody out there is thinking about creating a forum, which I strongly recommend. I love forums and I think that there are not enough of them or even creating like a subreddit or any kind of community, you're going to encounter this. It's, you know, it's always better to, in terms of uh, moderating, shoot first and ask questions later, <laughs> almost. Um, well, so, so that's the last report for me. I have a policy of uh, kill them with kindness. And what I mean by that is, so a lot of people, we have Angular fans and Vue fans and the React subreddit, right? And they'll speak their mind. They'll be like, they'll be like I'm going to get massively downvoted for this, but... And then they go on their rants, right? But then some of them raise valid points, right? And you should listen to them, right? Because they don't get listened to. And it, it sometimes can be worthwhile. You learn something from them. Because I, I, you know, I'm not an Angular. I, I have no experience with Angular, right? I, and I don't know what I'm missing out on. So oftentimes what I'll do is I'll be, I'll actually listen and go like, oh, can you explain more? Because I don't understand X and X point. Like do not engage in the like defensive behavior immediately. Because again, you have a small ego, like we're all trying to learn from each other, right? And more often than not, I get a personal message saying, hey, I expected to get a really hostile response. Instead, I got res- I was respected for my views, even though I was critical of React. And I had, and I did not expect that coming from you. And I appreciated that. And like people back down, right? Like a, a lot of them like just get pre, how do you say, like preemptively like defensive or like combative because they know it's like a hot topic. But like, I feel like if you just are willing to listen, people are reasonable in, in, in that sense because it takes a lot of energy to be angry all the time. Yeah, and it takes a lot of energy to stay angry. <laughs> Most people just, okay, cool. I mean, you stay angry because somebody killed your dad. You don't stay angry because of some somebody's offhand comment that was a, you perceived as a slight yeah. against your favorite JavaScript framework. People do. We, we had this guy, we banned this guy because he was being a troll. And then he was like, he messaged everyone on the Reddit telling them to join his alternative Reddit. So he like forked us, right? And then he like went off and like started his own sub. And he like, we were legitimately worried. We were like, is this guy going to harass everybody who posts on our subreddit? But eventually he just went away. Like I panicked. I was like, hey, like admins on Reddit, like help me here. And he was like, just give it some time. And obviously he went away. It takes energy. Like people don't have that energy to, <laughs> to fight you all the time. Yeah, and that's where just playing the long game and being patient definitely help out. And it sounds like uh, you're doing a pretty good job if your subreddit's up to 100K subscribers and you're having that level of engagement, which, yeah. I mean, what you were talking about with learning in public, most people are just using the internet to consume rather than to produce. And I think your learning in public approach turns that on its ear. And one of the projects that you've done as part of your learning in public initiative has been the react typescript cheat sheet yeah yeah and that's just been like hugely helpful for thousands of people it's got like six thousand stars or something wait what which (laughs) okay that uh, yeah so so i don't really look at it that much it's got six thousand i think so i was just looking at it a minute ago and i was like wow this is like really well received it's been yeah it's been very well received yeah i can tell you the story about how i made it yeah what inspired you to build it and like how did you go about doing it yeah so my most recent so after the boot camp the job i eventually settled on after my boot camp was at this insurance firm insurance startup and 
I come in, the, the lead, the team lead is a Java guy, right? So he likes his types. And it's like, we're going to do our front end in TypeScript and React. And I was like, good, I don't know TypeScript. Um, and and, uh, and oh, by the way, that's some advice for starting a new job as well. So two things. One is they already hired you. They're probably not going to fire you again. They hired you knowing who you are. So when they ask you, do you know TypeScript? Or do you know how to do X and Y in, in CSS or whatever, right? Like stuff that's out of your comfort zone. You're tempted as a first job out of them. You are tempted to say yes, right? You're tempted to say like, yeah, I, I can figure it out. I'll do it, right? Because of you want to appear confident. But I think that there, in, there are many cases in which ignorance is power um, and not knowledge. Because ignorance, if you're upfront about it, says that you're trustworthy. Like you're, you, like, you're not afraid to admit where you don't know stuff and people can help you. So like, that's what I said. I don't know TypeScript and I, I'm going to have to learn this. And he was like, okay, and I'll, and I'll teach you. And so, so like, I feel like people don't do that very much. Now, the other thing is uh, is to write tests. So a test, like writing tests as a new dev is the opposite of breaking. Of you, you, It's like the fear of a dev when joining a team is that they'll write some code and break everything. Test is the, writing tests is the opposite of breaking everything. You're making everything more resilient. So writing tests is, is very positive. So so anyway, so so TypeScript, what was I going with that? All right, so so I started writing notes about, like just a cheat sheet for myself because I was writing all these components and every time I had to look up how to like put the types on and everything. And I started this cheat sheet on GitHub and I shared it, obviously, because that's what I do and didn't really expect anything coming out of it. But then as I threw more and more of what I learned on there, people started taking notice because they were doing the same thing. And that's something that is underappreciated how much, like Patrick McKenzie calls this a friend catcher, right? Like you're making a thing that helps you, helps other people, but it helps you make friends. And that can that is currency that can be traded in for future stuff as well. So that's really nice. And, and, so, and so people started contributing like their pain points and stuff. Like it's been, I didn't know this, but it's actually been done a couple times before the documenting like React and TypeScript. And these ecosystems don't really go, haven't historically not been too closely associated because React has been created with Flow, which is the competing JavaScript type superset. And TypeScript has historically more been more associated with Angular. But there's actually no reason why they shouldn't be used together. In fact, they are being used together now and should probably will probably be the majority use case anyway so so it just wasn't documented that well because like the react team doesn't care about typescript i mean doesn't use typescript right and the typescript team has more general concerns than just react so so there's a gap there right and so me just the simple act of me putting it out there even though i wasn't i called it a cheat sheet like it, it clearly is more than a cheat sheet now it's almost a book but i called it a cheat sheet because it was just for me and but then people found it helpful and then they started adding stuff and and then started adding things that i didn't know i never had a use case for but it was just like people uh, wanted a, a venue that they could dump their knowledge because they needed a cheat sheet too and even though github is free they didn't make one i made one i don't know it's just like that whole choice of like if you can Thousands of people have done this before me. Why didn't they make one? Like two people have, like Basarat and I forget the other guy who made an, a similar one. That's it. <laughs> it's the entire, that's the entire, uh, Marius. That's the entirety of React and TypeScript people out there. It's weird because like this is an extremely marketable skill to have. People should be racing to like establish some sort of authority on it. Oh, I don't know. I wouldn't call myself an authority. I'm Again, I'm learning in public, but through the simple process of like managing the submissions that come in, discussing it with people. I have an audience with, with the TypeScript team now because I can ask Dan Rosenwasser or anything that, that comes up because I, I help to document. I'm part of like the documentation ecosystem, right? That's material value to me, which I, I don't know. It's not, I feel like it wasn't that hard to do. <laughs>
that's all I can say about that. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's so easy to get discouraged from like, oh, I'm sure somebody else has done this. Or you find an instance of somebody having done it before. Yeah. But that's the wrong way to think about it. The right way to think about it is, sure, somebody may have done this before, but I can do it in a different way. It doesn't even have to be a better way, but just a different approach that is suitable for you because there's a very good chance that whatever works for you is going to work for a lot of other people too, if you put it out there. Totally. Yeah. So so, so this helps as well. And a lot of people have given me this exact feedback, which is, this is the only TypeScript, this is the only cheat sheet. I mean, it's the only reference that is for not for total beginners, total newbies, and focus on React developers and focus on like they're just like already competent React developers and they get what TypeScript is the like, concepts wise. They just need to copy and paste stuff and then they'll, they'll figure it out everything else out from there. So this is I made this for me and it turns out there are a lot of me, right? So like that's good enough. That's all you need to get that going. What else would I say about that? I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to make this more of a, a, a general resource with like tips on tooling and focus on higher order components, even though that's not that's going away with React. But just like as generally useful to the massive over overriding trend. And hooking onto trends is a good thing, even though like there's a lot of trends in JavaScript and people get tired, but there's some that are obviously like mega trends. Obviously, React is still growing. Tremendously, it's growing at about ten percent, about ten percent every six weeks. Wow, the, it's still growing that fast. Oh yeah, for at least for the subreddit, right? And that's a proxy for the general React interest. Yeah, and uh, and if we go on like Google Trends, which is probably one of the best places to determine. No, the word is the word is like you know React. But that's a general English word. Yeah. I mean, that's like the type of YouTube video too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, we get a lot of like the Jonas Brothers react to the Marvel spoiler trailer. And they post, they take that YouTube video and post it in our subreddit. And I was like, guys, you're in the wrong Reddit. <laughs> yeah, well, it was probably a bot. Reaction video. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I wasn't going to say, oh, and TypeScript is a huge trend, right? It's, it went from 46% adoption in the last year's, in last year's NPM survey. And now it's in this year's at 63%. So it's crossed that threshold of like everyone is using it at work so they really need the resources to get this done if you're one of the few on there you'll get the you get you sort of get the benefit of working with all these people who are at the forefront of of implementing react and typescript like i get to chat with rebunch who gave that who gave a react and typescript talk who, who basically helped to convert airbnb like the entirety of their code base over to typescript i get to chat with her like that's ridiculous. Like I have not worked on anything the size of Airbnb, but just because like there's just so few of us that like they'll talk to me for sure, like whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty small. And so there was a saying that you know I think it was Andy Warhol used to say like in the future everybody will be famous for 15 minutes. Sure, but the reality is in the future everybody will be famous for like 15 people or something like that. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. people will be famous in their very micro niche spheres and uh, i feel like in the react and typescript overlap that community yeah you're quite prominent <laughs> yeah, it's weird it's, so i've been invited i've just been invited to be a technical reviewer for a book on this and like what so so yeah that's happening and just like it keeps going right like i think if you learn in public there, there are all these things that just come to you because you're just more visible and you're there and like you've you have skin in the game like you're not just like you're not just throwing stuff out there just for the sake of it like you're actually investing in it people can see you doing that and there're just not that many people who do it so so that's helpful oh i also want to pitch plug for learning public so sorry i have this whole like rant like i'm not very organized but learning public okay so 
when people interview, why do people interview you, right? They interview you to, to under, to like, most of the time, like you can code, right? Like it's a joke that a lot of people can't even code FizzBuzz, but you can code FizzBuzz. Let's assume you can code FizzBuzz. So most people want to interview you because, to see if they can work with you, right? That's the main thing. Like, do I see, do I, do I, can I see working with this person day in and day out for the rest of the time that they're here? And, and one way to really reduce that risk is to already work in the open. Like everyone can see everything that I've done every day for the past, I don't know, however, two, three years, three years I've been doing this, right? So I'm a known quantity as opposed to other people who are not known quantities and therefore they have to interview. If this job in Nellify ever goes south, which it doesn't seem like it's doing, but I don't know, right? Like I know that I have other people who already know who I am, who would hire me on the spot. And that just does not happen if you're in private all the time. It's a form of networking that's very much like inbound versus outbound. So there's a term in marketing where like outbound is where you like you cold call and you like send intrusive emails and all that. Whereas inbound is like you do content marketing and people who are interested in your stuff come to you and then you can close the sale. Uh, so it's, this so this is content inbound content marketing. Learn learn in public is basically inbound content marketing as far as like opportunities come in. And it's not just about jobs, it's about collaboration, it's about like reviewing a book, whatever, uh, podcasts, being invited on podcasts. It just all comes as part of it. So so I, I want to do that little plug there because I think I forgot to mention it. There's so much. Yeah. There's just so much to it. Yeah, it sounds like there it produces so many opportunities. I, I tweeted something earlier, like I think right before the new year I said people should figure out ways to build their skills and their network and their reputation all at one time Yeah, because you're going to need all three of those if you want to really succeed yeah. in doing like freelance or in getting like really good jobs and being highly sought after the way that like you were after your many public projects and all that. And I think learning in public is a great way to do that and practicing that learning. So if you put together like a, I guess we're going to link to the article, but if you had like a really concise, almost like learn in public pitch, that would be really cool. And you could put together a website and just model it after 100 days of code. I should I should totally do that. I, I think this is a movement. I had one offer for a tattoo. Someone wanted to tattoo learn in public. On the, I was like, whoa, like, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> and they were, they were like, does anyone have like a, a graphic design for this? And I do not have any of that. So I don't know. Well, the pressure's on. I mean, if they're permanently going to ink it onto their skin it better be good design <laughs> I know. But at least I'm <laughs> no 99 designs for you yeah. <laughs> at least i'm confident in the wording so fun fact i actually got a logo for react TypeScript cheat sheet and that i just put that up as an issue and people just contributed and i'm going to make stickers for anyone who can so these are stickers you can't buy so they're going to be for anyone who contributes to react TypeScript cheat sheet i'm going to just mail them a sticker and they can wear it on their laptop and just say they've contributed and it's a nice little badge of honor or whatever. But people like little tokens like that. Yeah, learn in public. I need. I probably need to get on that. I just like have, I, again, it's like the imposter syndrome. Like, who am I, right? Like, I definitely draw inspiration from Ken C. Dodds, who his motto is slightly different. It's learn, build, and teach. And that's his three-step process for being Ken C. Dodds. I highly recommend people look up that talk by Ken C. Dodds. And as well as Corey House is another pretty prominent JavaScript teacher. And his idea is about being an outlier. But I also grab all these ideas from people like Chris Coyer, people like Nathan Berry. So, okay, I'll just focus on Chris Coyer, right? Like, is the prototypical learning public dev. Like, he's sort of the, if anyone is a mathematical, he's like the eigen dev for, for learning public. Because... <laughs> 
he was like, he was like, I'm a, I'm just a regular dev and I need like an outlet to like post my CSS tricks somewhere. Huh? What will I call this site? Oh, I would just call it CSS tricks. And like, he just like posts good resources and friend catchers, right? The Patrick McKenzie term, the entire world like knows, knows who he is, right? Like he, like he is CSS tricks and he doesn't have to know all of the CSS tricks in the world. He just has to be the central collection point for them. And that's a much easier bar than knowing all the CSS in the world. And so like, that's a very good, like, and just like from there, you can launch like so many other things and projects and you just have a tremendous audience I think that's just good for the world good for him you can't grudge you can't begrudge that kind of success right yeah i mean what he's done is phenomenal and he's very active like a lot of times i'll just google random things and i'll come across recent blog posts he's done on different css things so even while he's running code pen right and also running css tricks and has i they're both companies that he manages yeah. so even while he's doing all that, he still finds time to like write new CSS tricks articles. That's yeah. That's because he, he like I, he definitely chooses if he wanted to. He doesn't have to do that anymore. But he chooses to because he's super interested in it. But yeah, even CodePen, right? They podcasted their entire journey and formation as a company. That's learning in public. So I think my point is like I feel a little bit of imposter syndrome because I feel like I did not invent this. I'm just helping to popularize it at this point in time. And I think that there are all these people that we can draw from because they've done it. Maybe there hasn't been a, a name and a, or a collected effort behind this, but this is their, this is what they do. This is, hey, like this is their secret. Like don't tell anyone, but. <laughs> like, yeah, well, Charles Darwin didn't invent evolution. He just codified it and explained it and labeled it. Yeah, you know? give it a name, so, right? Yeah. You're taking a phenomenon, learning in public and giving it a name and creating some basic pointers around it. Anyway, so yeah, that's that's my learning public spiel. I'm sorry, it's a, it's a long. It's, well, uh, yeah, Go ahead. we we only got like a few years into your career as a developer. So just to wrap, because we're almost at the two hour mark, I just want to I want people to know a little bit more about like how you progressed. Okay, as a dev, so you got you turned down a hundred twenty thousand dollar job because you were following a pathfinding algorithm or search algorithm yes oh okay so the eventual one the eventual offer i got was 160k base and then another 50k in bonuses and and equity and stuff so it is 210 which is what i eventually got wow again that's great yeah again not bragging like so when i was talking to them and we were like at the like i got the offer but like what's the salary stage like I, I did all the work. I, I was like, I, like uh, I'm gonna read Patrick McKenzie's job, blog post. I'm gonna read Asif's blog post and all that. And then I came up with my most ambitious number of one 160k. And then the guy was like, all right. And then he went back and came back to me. And he was like, all right, 160 base. And I was like, yes. And then he was like, 50k on top. I was like, what? Okay. Oh, yeah. I'll take <laughs> like uh, I don't know. Like I feel like if you are, I don't know. If, if, if I definitely got lucky out of that. But again. Like if you, if you just follow the process, you'll get to, you get to a good outcome anyway. I'm personally more focused on optimizing for total career rather than like immediate earnings. And I, so, so I took a pay cut from that to join Nello because I value being able to work in public. So, so that company, that, that insurance startup was not, was very much private and closed source. So I feel like if you want to talk about my career progress, that, that was part of it, which was um, always choosing the long-term goal rather than the short-term win and the short-term win would have been just like enterprise fintech whatever but the long-term goal would have been like working at some place like netlify they reached out to me again on twitter again because of all the learning public i've been doing so i'm very grateful to be here at, at all and be able to be part of the jamstack revolution <laughs> 
Yeah, and it is quite the revolution. It's gaining steam every day. So, yeah, this is really interesting because you took a huge pay cut to leave finance for software development. Mm -hmm. And then you got like a really high end, I mean, for somebody just entering the field, that's basically unheard of to get that level of compensation, even in San Francisco. And then you took another pay cut because you're following, you're like doing the hill climbing thing, right? Like you reach the top of the hill and you realize, hey, there are other hills. I need to climb back down before I can climb those. If you're paying attention to the number, I feel like I'm doing this wrong. But no, like I, so I, I value being able to work in public as well as being able to be remote. I value that as non-material. So like base salary is definitely not all the facets of the job. Being able to work with awesome, like, okay, a company that's on the move versus a company that's stagnant. The, the, start, the insurance startup that I was at definitely felt a bit stagnant to me. And that's no diss on them. It's just, it's very slow in insurance. Whereas, the, and like, we were like arguing over like, anyway, I, I just don't want to. So like a company that's on the move and on, on the forefront is just like much more my style in terms of like personality fit. And I think that's also like money is not everything. Like, and definitely like a lot of when you work at a 40 something person startup like Nellify, you're not going to be earning as much as you could working at like a large tech firm, but you get more in terms of like company trajectory, the company's growing really quickly. And it's not, it, yeah, like I, I feel like I'm almost not driven by money so much as just like being a part of something bigger than myself. And Jamstack is definitely part of like, I don't, I, when I joined in August last year, I did not know that there's just so many things that happened since then. Like I didn't know that Free Code Camp would be like an integral part of the Jamstack hackathon that we organized together. Like I didn't know that. I was just, I, like, I was just, these all disparate threads of like things that are happening in the tech world, Matt and Chris, the, the founders of Nullify, they, they seem to be uh, on top of it. And I'm just like lucky to be along for the ride because like it's like all these trends like even like yeah I, I, there, there's some things i can't talk about but but just like it seems it feels very different working at like a tech forward company i, I hate that word but you know what i mean like a, a more sort of forward leading company than than some of the other tech jobs that are available out there and that's a non-monetary value to me that i will take a pay cut for because i look at the total benefit as well <laughs> i guess one of the other benefits of working for Tech forward. I've never heard that term. I don't really like it either. Um, let's go with uh, cutting edge isn't very good. What else could we call it? Just an organization, a fast moving organization. Sure. Yeah, that's probably good. A fast moving organization like Netlify. Uh, one of the other perks is they have largely embraced remote work. Yeah. And as a result, you're on the move. Right. So so I've been a digital and that's one of the attractions to, to, to working in tech versus working in finance. And working in finance, you have to work in one of the big like hubs like New York or San Francisco. And working in tech, because all you do is online anyway, you, you can just work from wherever. So I, I was, I am a remote employee. I am normally based out of New York, but in December it got cold. So I went home and then I started and I haven't gone back yet. So so I like the phrase slow mad because I don't like the idea of traveling for traveling's sake. I like the idea of having just working out at the most optimal place for you that you just feel the vibe for at the time. So for example, I was a speaker at JSConf Hawaii, which is like an awesome, amazing conference. And that was my first JSConf speaking engagement, which I'm super proud of. And then I just stayed in Hawaii for a month. I didn't plan that, but it just worked out that way. And now I'm in Mexico and I'll be traveling a bit more. So again, 
I do not post any of that on my Twitter or any, anything else because I do want, don't want to glorify or contribute to the idea of traveling for traveling's sake. It's just about where am I comfortable? What do I feel like doing at that point in time? And, and as long as I'm able to contribute to my work and then be effective, they don't care. And so, so I have that freedom. Uh, but more importantly, like, like I'm someone, I don't, I'm not married. I may never be married. I don't have kids, whatever, right? Like, uh, I have friends who have kids and, and, and families, and they're rushing back and forth. They're coordinating with their significant others uh, on like, who's going to pick up the kids today? Because I, I got this thing at work. And they have to sacrifice between work and, and, and family. And that's a huge call to make, which like, uh, I mean, people do everywhere all the time. But if you work in tech, you have the option of working remote and organizing yourself in your life in a more sensible way. I think more people are doing that. And it's more, to me, more about being having like control over your time, not doing the commute. And if you can figure out how to be as effective, which like there's still some rough edges, right? You can be, you can do that too. Like for me, like I'm remote anyway, but I'm moving back to New York for foreseeable, foreseeably the rest of the year. And I want, I want to have a long-term base, but I have the freedom. Like I have the freedom to, to move wherever because I, I do a lot of speaking as well. I have the freedom to, to move because you work in tech, because you have that freedom of location to do that with. And I, I don't take that lightly. Well, I'm thrilled that you're making great use of your time and the fact that you're working remotely, traveling around. You can still travel with kids. Like, uh, it's just a lot harder. No, I mean, person <laughs> is working in working commuting to office, right? Yeah, non is a non remote job and juggling that with kids. And I've I one of my best friends has three kids and he's juggling with his wife, who's a full time housewife, and they still can't manage their kids sometimes. And it's ridiculous. I'm like, I, like I'll do it. Hell, like <laughs> I'm not doing anything useful. But like a lot of pe- a lot of young families struggle with that, and I feel strongly for them. And I think that their lives could be improved by remote work. Yeah, well, we're getting there. I think more and more organizations are going to embrace it, and teaching people, training them for these new jobs, is a big part of that. So we're going to keep doing that with Free Code Camp and everything that you're doing to just make these concepts more accessible and all these other things that you're doing these are integral thank you and thank you for free code camp as well so i don't i want to make it on i want to say this on this podcast because like i feel like so i put you in the same league as jimmy wales like your impact to the world and uh, it's just amazing what you've done i think software is eating the world and free code camp is eating software so kudos on on that (laughs) i will not (laughs) turn down being compared to one of my heroes (laughs) Jimmy Wales, the founder of Wikipedia. Man, that you're doing it. You know, I mean, have you like? I don't know. Like, have you seen? Yourself? Like, <laughs> this is still day one, man. This is the, we are very early days. Yes, sir. We are Free Code Camp is tracking like the growth trajectory of Wikipedia in terms of contributors and people who are using the platform. It's about Wikipedia is about 15 years older. Yeah. Than Free Code Camp is. We're about to turn five in October. That's the goal. I've always modeled like I think pretty much every open community owes a great deal to wikipedia as a proof of concept that it can work if wikipedia didn't exist there's probably a near zero likelihood i would have even tried to create something like free code camp because i would have just presumed there was no way that it would work but that was a glimmer of hope and it that hope proved real it's a great model that a lot of organizations can follow Thank you for that. So, Sean, I'm going to just, instead of saying, where can people find you and blah, 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 I'm putting all these links that we've mentioned throughout this entire podcast. They're going to be right in the show notes. Just in whatever podcast player you all are listening to this in, just scroll in there and there will be a treasure trove of links, especially if you're looking for a job because 
Sean mentioned pretty much all the articles out there. I'm going to throw in an article that we published a few years ago that actually it's one of the most useful articles in my opinion. It's a it's also a coding bootcamp grad and he applied for hundreds of jobs and eventually started getting offers and then he got better offers and he lays out all the data. It's a really useful article as well. So if you are looking for a job, I hope that you'll be patient as Sean has recommended and just keep at it and keep applying and not necessarily take the first offer, but rather use those offers as a sample of what you may be able to get and then follow some kind of game theory approach that he's recommended. But yeah, any closing thoughts, Sean? Learning public. Thank you for listening to the Free Code Camp podcast. If you've enjoyed this, tell your friends. Have a wonderful day and happy coding.